Uh, let's get to it. Why don't you grab your Bible and uh, turn with me to the scriptures, Matthew chapter 17. Strange story, there's a man found uh, that appeared to be murdered execution style uh, out in the middle of the wilderness um, uh, in kind of a desert wilderness sort of thing. But um, uh, tipped off to examine more closely, it was found to be actually suicide. And um, initially they thought, well, where's the weapon, you know, the gun, because he had a bullet wound to the head. Um, but actually it was uh, this guy rigged, rigged this contraption. He attached the gun to uh, several helium balloons. Uh, and then when he shot himself, the hope was that the balloons would carry the gun off into outer space or wherever, miles and miles away. Um, but, um, but apparently it got snagged in some trees nearby. Uh, so they found the gun, a tra kind of a tragic story. Um, why did he do it? Well, it was financial despair. Uh, he was trying to get an insurance settlement to his family and all that stuff. And, um, and you know, uh, uh, it's interesting when you hear stories like that, people, people are in despair, people are, are troubled uh, today. And, and suicide is on the rise in our current culture and day. Um, and uh, depression is bad, anxiety is bad uh, with gas prices and inflation and all the stuff that's going on um, in the world. But I love that you and I, we get to study the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, as we study through Matthew, um, I find great comfort in not so comforting times. And one of the things I love about uh, Athey Creek is you guys are willing to do some work and go through some heavy duty scriptures, you know, and, and do the work. Um, I'm really glad about that. Uh, and so let's, let's, uh, let's just dive into this with that expectation. Jesus is the hope that we have. Jesus is the answer to all the world's problems. And so we get to do that uh, tonight. And also, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we have that uh, now in Romans uh, 10, 17 talks about that. We get to do that uh, as we go through the scriptures. Now, last week we sort of left um, in uh, Matthew chapter 16. We, we finished up Matthew chapter 16, but I sort of left the cliffhanger. Uh, and if you were with us on Sunday, we took some time to answer the cliffhanger that we left on, on Wednesday. Um, and, and that is Matthew 16, 28. If you look at the last verse of our text last uh, Wednesday night, it seems that Jesus either was mistaking or lying or something. But we, one of the things I love about the way um, we approach the Bible is if there's a confusing moment or point um, that might seem contradictory or whatever, we approach the Bible as the word of God and it's inerrant, infallible, the perfect word. So if we think that Jesus was wrong, we know that we're the wrong one, right? Are you guys with me on that? Uh, that's the way I study the Bible. Like, well, we gotta figure out what's, what's wrong with our thinking or where did we go wrong? Because Jesus was never wrong. Um, so the, the verse that might seem wrong is uh, verse 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here, Jesus said, which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Um, now there's a, a couple things, uh, I'm gonna sort of jump on what we talked about on Sunday. So if you missed that, you won't get the full description, but I'll, I'll give you some, some of the details. So one of the problems, I did, and, and stuff I didn't talk about Sunday. One of the problems is, um, I believe along with um, a lot of, if you read a lot of commentaries and scholars and theologians, they believe the chapter break here is sort of unfortunate. Um, and there's a lot of chapter breaks in the Bible that are sort of unfortunate. Well, but aren't the chapters and verses inspired? No. The, all the verses and chapters of the Bible are inspired, but the numbering system and the breaking up of the chapters, did you know that came you know, many, many years later? A man named Stephen Langdon divided the Bible, uh, the Latin Vulgate, if you would, the translate, uh, translation of Latin Vulgate, uh, into chapters in the year 1227 AD. So chapters came more than a thousand years after Christ. Uh, can you imagine Wednesday night Bible study without chapters? Turn in your Bible where the story of the cleansed leper which one, Brett? Uh, well, um, the one that's kind of talked about by Matthew, uh, good luck. And we'd take the first 20 minutes just trying to shuffle through our Bible. So I'm thankful for chapters and verses, I really am. But, but we, we have to kind of take the breaks and the, and the divisions of chapters and verses sort of um, uh, in, in stride. It was 1551, uh, Robert um, Estony, uh, AKA Stephanus, um, added the verses. Uh, so the chapters came in 1227, verses came in 1551, uh, and the fourth edition of the Greek New Testament 
Uh, and then later in, uh, in the Geneva translation, uh, Geneva Bible, uh, 1560 of the English translation. So it, it really was a long time ago um, that those things happened, but, but compared to the, the giving of scripture and the original manuscripts, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. So, um, so there's various views on this. And there are some so-called scholars, and I'll call them, you know, the pipe-puffing cardigan, you know, sweater uh, scholars. That's, that's my key word for stupid people. Um, um, uh, and there, the, there, there's a theory out there that says, well, Jesus was just mistaken here. You know, and there, there are people so-called, you'll see them on the Discovery Channel, on the History Channel. They like to quote these cardigan shirt-wearing, puff, you know, sweater, puff, pipe-puffing guys. They quote them all the time because they think they're scholars, but they're not. So th- there are people that will say Jesus made a mistake here. That's the first thing. Um, but we know Jesus was out without mistake and was, uh, you know, Hebrews 4, 15 says that, you know, but was an all point tempted like us, but without sin. And by the way, making a mistake is sin. Did you know that? Well, what's just a mistake? No, uh, sin, the word sin means to miss the mark, uh, off target. Uh, so that's, it, it's, it's, sin is this all encompassing word. Jesus never sinned. First uh, Peter 2.22, uh, Jesus did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. First John 3.5, you know, uh, you know that uh, Jesus was manifested to take away our sins and in him was no sin. So we, we see Jesus is perfect without sin. Um, so, so that's the first theory. Some people say, well, Jesus was mistaken and I vehemently reject that view. The second view that I disagree with uh, that you'll hear out there is that the kingdom has already happened, uh, that we are now living in the kingdom. Um, and that's actually a very popular view right now. Uh, maybe some of you guys come from churches that teach we're living in the kingdom right now. Um, there's, a, there's actually a, a theology uh, out there called kingdom now or dominion theology that says we are the ones who kind of are in the kingdom or we're ushering the kingdom in. It's our job to do that. Um, when I read the Bible, I don't see us having anything to do with the kingdom coming. I mean, we're trying to do work before the kingdom comes. We have lots of work to do. We're told to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're looking forward to the kingdom, but we are not, praise the Lord, we're not in the kingdom right now. Would that be depressing right now? If we're like, welcome to the kingdom. Uh, we got crime, disease, problems, death. Uh, that's a bummer. The kingdom's not so fun uh, as it turns out. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, you might refer to Daniel chapter nine. Remember the prophecy of Daniel, chapter nine, verse 24, the 70 weeks that were determined on the people of Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem. And that verse says, to finish the transgression, this is the millennial kingdom is being described. The 70 weeks determined upon Israel has to do with the, bringing it to the millennial kingdom ultimately. But it says, what will happen to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness. This is a description of the kingdom. Are we there yet? No, Uh, there's still a lot of iniquity, a lot of uh, unrighteousness. Um, And uh, I look forward when the kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, there'll be no mistake about it. Uh, and the reason the king will be here, uh, the king of the kingdom, uh, coming in his kingdom. So, so um, all that to say, uh, I think this unfortunate chapter break has uh, led some people to come up with some conclusions like, well, I guess Jesus, his kingdom must have already come or whatever. But um, some scholars believe that verse one of chapter 17 should be verse 28 of chapter 16, because it's almost like Jesus is preparing them saying, you know, there's some of you guys standing here and, and we know who they are if you were here on Sunday, Peter, James, and John. Those three would actually see Jesus. Now, one thing I didn't really have time to touch on um, on, um, on Sunday uh, because of time, but uh, some, some you might be left with still the question, well, Brad, I, I get it, that they saw Jesus in, his glo- in the transfiguration we're about to look at here in Matthew 17. They saw Jesus in his glory, shining as bright as the sun. So they saw Jesus in a sort of kingdom state. But um, the verse uh, 28 of chapter 60 says that he'll be coming in his kingdom. And we don't really see that. Like you might, you might see that. The word coming here is really interesting. In the Greek New Testament, there are six different words for coming. Did you know that? Uh, um, we have one word for coming in the English. Um, uh, we have one word for love. There's eight, at least eight words for love in the Greek uh, language. So the Greek language is very colorful. So it does one well to look up this word coming. 
Uh, because I, again, I think this might be a little bit of an unfortunate uh, way of saying this. Uh, see, they'll see Jesus coming in his kingdom. And let me just kind of quickly show you that word. Um, the word uh, uh, coming in the Greek is um, erkomai, uh, which uh, for you um, language experts and all that, it's middle voice of a primary verb used only in the present and imperfect tenses. Uh, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's just talk about the definition. To appear is the word there, not, not like coming from point A to point B. See, when we use the word coming, it can mean so many different things, but um, you know, we, we kind of use, our definition is to go from one place and draw near to a, another destination. That's what coming means. But this Greek word, uh, if you look it up, it means to, um, not a change in location. The Greek word for that, by the way, is koreo. Uh, where it means you're going, the more, uh, you know, just leaving one space and making uh, a journey to another place. Um, there's another one, erkomai, which means um, the one that we're talking about here, to appear, to make one's appearance, uh, to come before the public, sort of like an unveiling, if you would, uh, to come into being, uh, the second definition, to come into being, arise, come forth, show itself, find place, or influence, uh, being an influencer. Uh, for you uh, social media people. Um, uh, the, um, another one, to be established, to become known, to come into or unto, to go. All, this is a funny thing about this, uh, this um, erkomei. Um, it also means to go <laughs> or to follow one out, uh, which is kind of an interesting word. So this word is really a, a unique word. So you, you, it depends on how you, you look at the context of this and, and it's caused some trouble. Um, so um, um, when you look at like uh, Kenneth Weist word studies in the Greek New Testament, uh, which is a really helpful resource, like a, I think a four or five volume set. Um, but he, he talks about how it's more of a word that talks about to find place of influence and to be known as one who is, is an influence, which is kind of interesting. Um, so Jesus in the transfiguration is revealing himself, showing that he is not just another prophet, that's what, one of the reasons Moses and Elijah are there in the transfiguration to say, here's Moses, here's Elijah. And they're all, wow. But, they're, but the Lord says, but this is my son, Jesus. So Moses, eh, Elijah, eh, Jesus, ding, 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 ding. That's the transfiguration in Sesame Street terms, uh, <laughs> which is more my level. But anyway, um, but, but Jesus is showing he's not just another prophet. He's transfigured. And the Greek word there we saw on Sunday was metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis, where uh, he changed into more of his kingdom mode. And it matches some of the glorified Jesus's descriptions. And if you're a student of scripture, Ezekiel gives us a description of, of the glorified Jesus. The book of Revelation chapter one gives us a, a vision of glorified Jesus. And now the disciples got to see that. Uh, as he will be in his coming kingdom. He's being revealed as the king of the kingdom. So don't let the word coming sort of derail you on that particular point. Uh, it's it's an important word. You can do your own word study on that if you want to, but um, just this is almost like the transfiguration is setting the record straight that Jesus is supreme. Elijah is not supreme. Moses is not supreme. They're, they're both good dudes. And, um, and when Jesus comes in his kingdom, we talked a little bit about this on Sunday, uh, Moses and Elijah will probably be there uh, just before the coming of his kingdom, which is kind of interesting. Um, we'll perhaps look more at that. But, um, but that brings us to our text here. Let's, let's just read through that first section and then we'll keep going. Uh, it says in verse one of chapter 17, and after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, uh, Elias, the Greek version of Elijah, um, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. 
And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, tell the vision to no man until the son of man be risen from the dead. How many times does Jesus talk about his death and his resurrection and then the disciples still didn't know what was going on. Um, I, I, I do read this, I think, man, these guys are a little thick, but I'm pretty sure if I were there, I'd be just like them. What's going on? And when Jesus died, they weren't really looking for him to really resurrect as much as they really should have, should have been. But um, we saw, you know, of course, um, on uh, Sunday, we looked at, at how um, this is a, the transfiguration, <coughs> excuse me, it's almost like a transference too from the prophet's um, to Jesus being the final word. And uh, I just want you to remember this verse. The reason I had us go there on Sunday is, um, this is this is where the author of Hebrews spells this out for us. God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in times past uh, by, unto the fathers by the prophet, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. Uh, if you would, you, you might just kind of note that this is, Jesus gets the final word. It's not the prophets who get the final word, Jesus. Um, and remember Jesus talked about um, the, the Old Testament mode of prophecy. Who was the last prophet of the Old Testament, anybody? John the Baptist, that's right. You might say Malachi, because he's the one, last one of the Bible or, order and structure. But if you recall, Jesus said, yeah, uh, John the Baptist is the, the last of the prophets uh, of the Old. So John the Baptist was moving in the prophet mode pre-New you know, pre Testament, if you would, what changed gears? Was it the writing of the Bible? No, it was Jesus' coming and the transfiguration seals the deal. Um, uh, because it says he, Jesus, in the, now in these last days, the last days being from Jesus on, uh, spoken to us by the Son, who had appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory, that's, that, that's like the transfiguration, um, and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, God spoke through the law and the prophets in various times and what have you. Praise the Lord for that. We have the Old Testament. But now speaks through Jesus. Jesus gets the last word. You have to remember uh, at this time, particularly, the target audience here is the Hebrew people, the Jews. Um, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the last word. Um, and um, and the, the sad thing is the Jews largely rejected Jesus. It would be the Gentiles who would catch on uh, ultimately and the church would take off like wildfire through the Gentiles largely. Um, and so the Jews, by the way, will come back around to see Jesus as the Messiah Read Romans 9, 10, 11. The Jews will see Jesus as the Messiah uh, during the uh, tribulation period, according to the Bible. Uh, Romans 9, 10, 11. Now, uh, by the way, Jesus is the last word. It's interesting the groups that kind of say, no, Jesus is not the last word. Uh, people like the Muslims. The Muslims say Jesus was a good prophet who had some good words, but he is not the son of God. If you go to the, um, Al, um, the Alaska Mosque or the, the Dome of the Rock Shrine on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the big golden dome building, the, the blue writing in, in uh, Arabic letters all around the rim of that uh, Dome of the Rock Shrine says, Allah has no one who's begotten, nor does he beget. Um, and that's, that's a very clear statement. The Muslims do not believe Jesus is the son of God which is uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago, by the way. So, you know, the Muslims say they have the last word. Uh, you know, Muhammad, uh, no, Jesus is the last word. Um, now, um, uh, Peter in his jumping up, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. Peter's sort of moving backward, trying to go back to Moses and Elijah. But the whole point of the transfiguration was we're moving forward from the prophets to Jesus. And that's why God overshadows them with a bright cloud and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. That's why I say it like that, that Jesus gets the last word because God says, hear him. He's the big deal here. Um, and so they look up and see no man save Jesus only. Um, on a sort of a personal note for you uh, and your own personal walk, make sure you're listening to Jesus. Um, there's so many uh, books out there and podcasts and uh, sermons online, which are all, they're very helpful and there's some very good things and stuff like that. But make sure that Jesus is the last word 
you know, in your life, that Jesus is everything. You're all in all. Um, you know, pe- people ask, have you read any good books lately? And I always joke and say, well, the Bible. Um, and they think I'm joking, but I, I really do love reading the Bible more than I like reading other books. And um, uh, one guy was trying to insult me years ago and he said, you're just a Bible guy, he said. And I said, thank you. Like, I, cause it was like, to me, that's a great compliment. Thank you, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, the, the voice that we need and the very clear voice is, is Jesus. And are we listening to, to what Jesus has to say? Are we, uh, Jesus only, you know, that, that's that lesson we learned on Sunday. I love the story of a job opening in the cowboy days back when the telegraph was the fastest mode of, of long distance communication. A young man, you know, uh, applied for a job as a Morse code operator. You know, do, 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 that was the way they, you know, communicate. Um, so answering an ad in the newspaper, he, he went into the office that, where the job was listed. But when he arrived, there was already a large group of young men there filling out this application. And he was like the last guy to show up. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a large office, busy, noise and clatter, all, but uh, including the sound of the telegraph in the background. Do, 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 do. Anyway, they're there all filling out their forms. But a sign on the receptionist counter instructed the job applicants to fill out a form and wait until they were summoned to enter into the inner office where they'd be interviewed. Well, the young man filled out his form, sat down, and with all the other applicants there, the guy was there just for a few minutes, and he just stands up and walks into the office. And all the other guys are kind of huffing and like, well, who does that guy think he is, you know? And, and, um, and uh, naturally, you know, the other guys being upset kind of muttered among themselves saying, what are the, who does he think he is and what's going on? He must be gonna be disqualified because he, he didn't wait, you know, like they said. Well, a few minutes later, the, the manager, employer, escorts the young guy out and, and um, he said, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming, but the job has been filled. Um, and, uh, and, and they said, he said, you all can go home. And they said, that's not fair. You know, they yelled out, but I love it. The employer said, I'm sorry, but all the time you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been ticking the following message in Morse code. If you understand this message, come right in. The job is yours. Uh, he said, none of you understood it or heard it. This young man did, so the job is his. Uh, I love that. Uh, and and I, I sort of feel like there's, there's that going on in Christianity. There's a lot of noise, and a lot of people are talking about spiritual things or even seemingly holy things, but we've got to tune in to, to Jesus. Uh, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word incarnate. Uh, it's all, it's Jesus only. What a key. Well, all that to say, back to Matthew chapter 17, um, you know, we gotta, we gotta tune into the Lord um, and, and hear, that, hear that still small voice, you know, from the Lord. Uh, all that to say, uh, the story wouldn't, um, this story was not to be revealed, Jesus says here at the end of our little section here, uh, there in verse nine, tell the vision to no man until the son of man be risen from the dead. Um, uh, why, why would Jesus say this? We've, we've been noticing this all throughout the gospel so far. He's said this in several occasions where it, it seems that he's trying to you know, put down the information getting out. Uh, and it all had to do with timing. Jesus had a time and he'd always say stuff like, mine hour is not yet come. Um, and there was a timing that Jesus had. And uh, there, was a, there was a time where he wants revelation to be given where, and there's other times he wants it to not be. And I found that's true. Even in my own personal walk, sometimes the Lord gives me understanding of things and sometimes I don't have understanding of things. Um, one of the things I would encourage you uh, to not be frustrated by is not understanding things in the Bible. Don't get freaked out by that. I know some people are kind of wired where unless you can figure everything out, you sort of cast the whole thing out. Uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. You know? um, and uh, I, I would say, be careful with that. If you don't understand something, give it time. Uh, the Lord reveals um, himself and truth. And the Bible is, is uh, like reading little time bombs. And the Lord sets off these little time bombs. But um, this time bomb of the transfiguration of Jesus was not to be revealed till after he rose from the grave where the disciples would then say, let's tell you about what happened there on Mount, uh, you, know, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, Mount uh, Tabor or, you know, um, you know wherever it was. Uh, we, we can just trust that these guys, we're gonna explain it. Now, um, uh, in, in verse 10, it goes on. And this also causes confusion. So we're gonna try to clear up some other confusion in this uh, area of the Bible. It says in verse 10, and his disciples asked him saying, why then say the scribes that Elijah must, come, uh, must first come? 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Huh? What? What's this whole thing? And, and we've already touched on this a time or two, but it's confusing enough where I think it would probably do us well to maybe look at this again. And I'm, I'd like you to do some Bible flipping. Are you guys okay with a little Bible flipping right now? Or at least uh, maybe jot down some of these notes um, the, of, the, of the address of the scriptures. Um, because, you know, we've already uh, talked a little bit about this uh, uh, from Matthew chapter 11. So let's go backward to Matthew 11 real quick. Um, and the question is, is John the Baptist Elijah um, or is he not? And is Elijah gonna come and when? Uh, and there's, so that's kind of, there's like, like, and what does the Old Testament Elijah have to do with the end and the, the day of the Lord, all this stuff? Uh, there's confusion here. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. Let's take a look at that real quick. We looked at this a few weeks back, but uh, we'll, we'll zoom in on this a little more. In Matthew 11, 11, um, it says there, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not arisen uh, a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, here's that, that section I was telling you about earlier, verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. See, that's where we see the John the B, J the B was the last of the prophets. And if you will receive it, um, th this is a red flag in the Bible. Here's Jesus saying, now, if you'll receive this, in other words, it may be hard to receive. This might be a hard one to swallow. Uh, but Jesus says, if you will receive it, um, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Wow, this is kind of cryptic. Uh, Jesus said, if you, have, if, you, if you really can figure this out, guess what? He is kind of Elijah. And if you have ears to hear, let him hear. So, so it seems here that Jesus is saying, well, John the Baptist is sort of Elijah, come back. Uh, and that sounds, sounds good so far. So, so when you ask, ask the question, was John the Baptist Elijah? You might say, well, yeah, look, Jesus said, this is Elijah, which was for to come. Um, okay, let's flip over to John chapter one, the gospel of John chapter one. And there, uh, they asked John the Baptist the same question. Let's hear it from the horse's mouth uh, here. Um, uh, John the Baptist was asked in uh, John chapter one, verse uh, 21 through 23. John 1, 21 through 23, it says, and so they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Thou uh, art thou that prophet? We already talked about who that prophet was last week. And he answered, no. Then said they unto him, who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, said, uh, as said the prophet Isaiah. So John the Baptist said, I am not Elijah. So is he or isn't he? Well, you're, you might be saying, well, I'm gonna trust Jesus on this one, but John the Baptist, was he wrong? Well, not exactly. He's actually kind of right too. Well, how can they both be true? Well, um, if you remember um, in Matthew 17, you know, our text here, uh, you know, the scribes teach that John the Baptist is gonna come there, you know, in verses uh, 10 and 11. Um, and, and by the way, one thing that I, I wanna add to this is kind of funny, is Jesus, the scribes actually were teaching something that was true. That, that seems a little bit of a shocker. The scribes are, we already know them to be wacko. But one of the things that the scribes were teaching that was actually true was that Elijah's gonna come again. Um, that was a true thing. And they asked, you know, the, uh, Jesus said, yep, that's right. Elijah is gonna come. But I say to you, Elijah's already come. Which now, now they're, so now they're really confused. So, so what do we do next? Well, this is where we go to Malachi, the very last two verses of the Old Testament. If you would flip over to the Italian, Malachi. Uh, and chapter four, the last two verses of Malachi. 
And this is the prophecy where the scribes got their teaching. The scribes were right. Jesus said, yep, the scribes are right. Elijah is gonna come. Where did they get that? It's Malachi, uh, the Hebrew Bible, if you would, the Old Testament as we call it. Chapter four, verse five. And there it says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Remember we've talked about the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? In a, in a short summary, it's when God says time's up and he intervenes completely in, into human affairs. It's gonna be the rapture of the church, the tribulation period. That's, the, that's when the day of the Lord really kicks into gear. Um, so it says, Elijah the prophet, um, I will send Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Do you ever wonder, like this is a strange thing to think about, but do you think Elijah's on the earth today? But that's, that's crazy. Well, we know if, if you read your Bible and you believe it, Elijah is coming in the tribulation period um, before the dreadful day of the Lord. But this verse says even a little bit before, he'll be here before. So there'll be a lot. Now don't go around writing books on uh, so-and-so is Elijah because you and I won't know that, nor will we be here to confirm it. We're gonna be raptured. And, I, and there's a lot of weirdos uh, that get into Bible prophecy. Watch out for the weirdos. We, we need to normalize some of this stuff, but I, this is a miraculous thing. But what's gonna happen, verse six, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Um, that's the end of the Old Testament. The end. Like, isn't that an abrupt ending of the Old Testament? The last word of the Old Testament, curse. It's like, well, you can sum up the whole Old Testament uh, with that last word. We're all under curse of sin and death because of our sin. Uh, but praise be the Lord, the, uh, Jesus is the one who, uh, you know, died in our place, canceling that curse of sin. But, uh, but be that as it may, here in Malachi, the dreadful day of the Lord is that... Um, that Jesus is come, you know, his, his first coming was not, uh, you know, for the end. His first coming was for the the, uh, the dying on the cross for the sins of the world. But it's his second coming and the tribulation period that uh, uh, Elijah is going to come. So, but you have to say, but is John the Baptist Elijah? Um, well, let's go back to Matthew, uh, or, or no, pardon me, go to Luke chapter one. I told you I was going to have you flip around. Um, but this is where you get kind of the summary. If you look at all these scriptures I'm showing you, Luke chapter one, uh, verses 12 through 17. And this is kind of where we'll land this whole thing. I think this is maybe where we get sort of the summary answer for all the things. Is he Elijah or is he John the Baptist? Is, is Elijah coming still? Uh, but Jesus said, if you can handle it, Elijah's already come. But like what? Here's the answer I think given to us. Luke chapter one, verse 12. It says, and when Zachariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, fear not Zachariah, as for thy prayers heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Uh, John means Yahweh is gracious. Um, so this is the father of John the Baptist. Uh, he, he finds out he's gonna have a, a son named John, John the Baptist. And this tells us a bunch of stuff about him. Check out verse 14. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Did you know a person can be filled with the Holy Ghost even while they're in the mother's womb? That's, that's radical. Um, and verse 16, many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord, their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and uh, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. So notice the, the turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is, this is that reference to Malachi chapter four verses uh, uh, four and five, and, or five and six um, there in Malachi. So, so the, you know, Zechariah gets this word that's basically saying, as it turns out, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter four, five, and six. But you say, but, but it's not the end yet. And, and the day of the Lord has not come yet. Well, that's where it says, but the spirit of uh, the power of Elijah will be put upon John the Baptist. So that might be the, the way you can summarize this. Jesus is saying, if you can handle this, 
he is Elijah in, in so much that the same spirit that was upon Elijah is now upon John the Baptist. And so they're very similar and they're, they're empowered by the same spirit. Question, we, we, we learned something here that you know the spirit, a, a spirit of some kind can be upon one guy and that same spirit can be on another. Is there any examples where maybe that same bad, uh, evil spirit would be on the same person throughout history? Well, if you know your Bible, there are some, some spirits that may be going out throughout all of history, it's the same spirit. Uh, when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll talk about this, but I believe perhaps the same spirit that was like, like on say, Caesar Nero, uh, may be the same spirit that was upon like Hanan of the Old Testament, or even Hitler. Uh, you know, like this, there's, a, there's, a, uh, you, there's kind of an evidence in the Bible that even an evil spirit that's kind of throughout ages can be upon someone. But in the, in the good sense, John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah upon him, which is kind of a strange notion, but that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says here. So he was John the Baptist with the power of Elijah, the same spirit of Elijah was upon him. Um, and, uh, and so this is what kind of the mystery is. So when will Elijah come? Uh, you know, Malachi says before the end and during the day of the Lord. So we still look for Elijah, literally Elijah coming again during the tribulation uh, time. Now I know I probably shouldn't go into all this, but I want to, so I'm going to. Uh, go, with me to go with me to Revelation chapter 11, because we want to finish this sort of, who is Elijah, when is he coming? Uh, was John the Baptist Elijah? Well, he had the spirit of Elijah, but Revelation 11 is where we're gonna read about this. And I wanna show you why I believe it's probably um, Elijah and Moses that I believe is gonna come. Now, some of you might think it's Elijah and Enoch. Uh, I, I, I have sort of gone back and forth over the years on this, but I think I'm more and more convinced that it's these two prophets are gonna be Moses and Elijah, and I'll show you why. Um, Revelation 11, of course, is the middle of the tribulation period. Uh, six through 19 is the tribulation of, of book of Revelation. But it says in verse one of 11, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod that was used for measurement, um, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and holy city uh, shall tread they under their foot 40 and two months. How long is 40, 42 months? Three and a half years, halfway through the tribulation, abomination of desolation for you Bible buffs, you, you know, this is all significant. By the way, um, there's gonna be a temple built in the tribulation period. It's gonna be defiled by uh, the Antichrist called the abomination of desolation. But one of the th biggest problems people have is how are they gonna build the temple? Because the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy site of Islam is right there on the Temple Mount. How are they gonna build the temple? Well, I think this gives us an answer. Um, if you go with us to Israel, if we're fortunate enough, uh, about half the time we are able to get up onto the Temple Mount. Uh, usually it's politically uh, tumultuous, so you don't always get up there. But when we go up there, we, I'll take you to a place where there's the Dome of the Spirits, which is a little gazebo that's over um, you know, on the, um, uh, the north side of the Dome of the Rock Shrine, the Golden Dome on the Temple Mount. And, uh, and what's interesting is that once in a while, you'll see a brave Jew get up there, a Hasidic Jew, and he'll be pacing off the dimensions of the temple. I've seen them up there. And they're, they're like walking a tightrope. Even though on this huge uh, you know, plaza, and they could walk any direction, hundreds of feet, but they're just, they're almost like a tightrope. What are they doing? They're measuring the temple because they, they're looking forward to having their temple rebuilt uh, someday. Um, but, but you say, but Brett, if you know how big the temple was in the Old Testament, there's no way it would fit on the Temple Mount unless you bulldozed the Dome of the Rock uh, shrine. People call it a mosque, it's not a mosque. The Al-Aqsa is a mosque, Dome of the Rock is a shrine. Um, but the shrine, you say, there's no way we're gonna bulldoze that. Well, as it turns out, the book of Revelation says, when you build the temple in the tribulation period, it's not gonna have, what? The court of the Gentiles. It says, leave that out. Um, but the court, which is without the temple, leave out because it's given to the Gentiles. In other words, the footprint of the temple is gonna be way smaller in the tribulation period than what was there in the time of Solomon. And if you know what that is, there's plenty of room for that in this big open area of the plaza of the Temple Mount. And I believe the Antichrist is gonna come and broker a peace deal 
and work out a thing where the Muslims and the Jews are gonna be able to share the Temple Mount because that's the way the world does it these days. Oh, all the wonderful world religions, blah, blah, blah. And they're gonna, they're gonna make it so they can have the Temple and the Dome of the Rock Shrine coexisting next to each other. That's gonna go over real well. Um, we know the Bible story and the end of the story, it's not gonna go well. But, but be that as it may, this fits. Uh, in, and I know there's controversy about where the temple's gonna be built and all this stuff, but all that to say, that, that's interesting freebie, but I'm off course, we gotta get back to it. So verse three, uh, Revelation eleven three, it says, and I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days and be clothed in sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance, by the way. Um, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. When we were in Zechariah uh, chapter four, we talked about the two candlestick vision, and this is talking about these two witnesses. Um, verse five, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in, his, in this manner be killed. So barbecue death. Verse six, and they'll have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Okay, these two prophets that are gonna come, uh, one of them's gonna have, have power to, well, they're both gonna have power to have fire come out of their mouths. And, and does that ring a bell? Who, which prophet of the Old Testament was a very fiery prophet? Which prophet also was able to shut down the rain from the clouds? Elijah the prophet, that's what it says here. These will have power to shut the heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. So that's one of the reasons why I'm very convinced this is Elijah the prophet, but also notice what other things they can do. Uh, verse six, middle part. And they will have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Who was really good at that? I jokingly say that because Moses was empowered by God to do that, but Moses turned water into blood, sent plagues. That's uh, why I believe it was Moses and Elijah. But it goes on, verse seven, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which uh, spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, um, where also our Lord was crucified. So spiritually, Jerusalem is like Sodom and Gomorrah in Egypt today, which is true. They're very ungodly in a lot of ways. Um, but it's where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem. Verse nine, and they of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and um, shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. Um, they'll say, merry dead prophet day or whatever. Um, and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood on their feet and great fear upon them which saw them. Um, so we're back, there we are. Uh, and verse 12, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, come up hither. And they ascended up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake and the 10th part of the city fell. And in the earthquake there were slain of men 7,000 and the remnant were frightened and gave glory to the God of heaven. Um, this is all uh, uh, speaking of what's gonna happen um, uh, in the future. Uh, but all that to say, um, remember uh, the, the rapture of the church is gonna happen before all this actually happens as I, as I believe it. Um, now, why go to this now? There's a link to the death of Jesus, but also to a snapshot of the coming kingdom because this is the precursor. These guys are there for three and a half years, the, the last three and a half years, um, you know, where it's, gonna, it's all gonna come into pass where the day of the Lord is entered in. So, um, so what, you know, is Elijah coming again? Yes, I believe he's gonna come as one of these two witnesses, probably with Moses. The reason people say Enoch is because Enoch also didn't see death in the Old Testament, nor did Elijah. Moses seemed to have died. There was a weird circumstance as we talked about Moses' death on Sunday, but that's a whole nother deal. So that's the mystery of Elijah. If, um, John the Baptist was not Elijah, but he had the spirit of Elijah on him, but, um, uh, but he, Elijah is still coming in the, in the future. Okay, are you guys with me on that? I think that's important. People use this <clears throat> for, um, you know, Bible controversies all the time. <coughs> well, uh, picking up in verse, where were we, 14? 
<laughs> back in Matthew uh, 17, 14, uh, it says, uh, and when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him saying, Lord, have mercy on my son for he's a lunatic. Why are you guys laughing? I heard some laugh. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just giving you a hard time. It is kind of funny. Um, why would you call your son a lunatic? Uh, see, that's a funny thing. We don't use the word lunatic. Uh, if you call someone a lunatic today, it's pretty much meant to be a derogatory term and insulting. Um, but it was a, it was a very big um, um, sort of uh, belief uh, in uh, Bible times. And it's an interesting word. Um, the, the, it actually comes from the Latin Vulgate translation. Um, but the original uh, Greek word here for a lunatic is sel uh, anizomai, uh, which um, means to be moonstruck. That's where the word luna, the Latin uh, luna or moon, um, it means to be moonstruck. Now you say, what's moonstruck? Isn't that a movie by Cher? Uh, I would never know that. Um, but uh, one of my least uh, favorite uh, people. Uh, but, but, but moonstruck um, means like they believed if you were asleep and the moon beams shined on you while you were asleep, that you'd lose your mind and you'd go crazy. Um, and some people, had, there was a word for that. So um, when they saw someone who was demon possessed or, or seemingly in, mentally insane, they would call him a lunatic. That's where we got our word. But it meant that he was struck, struck by the moon. Um, and so that's what this parent is saying. Now, some of your newer translations, and I, I gotta say this, uh, translations are, are great. I love all the various translations, I have to say this. And, and if you were on a desert island with the NIV, uh, the King James, New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, I love the ESV, you're, you're gonna hear the good news and you're gonna have good theology. Like I'm amazed at how all the various translations are very helpful. Um, there are some translations that are wacko that are not translations at all. The New World Translation by the boys in Brooklyn and the Watchtower Society, that is not a translation of the Bible. They, they claim that it is, but it's not. Um, Book of Mormon also tweaks the original languages of the Bible. So that's not a real you know, translation. Um, so you have to stick to the main ones. But the, the reason I go into that is they are translations. And so you're, which translation is better? If you go to the original language, which one did the better translation? Here's one of the unfortunate ones. Many of your Bibles that are reading this, instead of it saying lunatic, it says epilepsy or maybe seizures. Some of your Bibles say seizures. And all of the epileptics out there are going, great, I'm a lunatic now, according to the Bible. Um, no. Um, the, the idea of lunatic is not epilepsy. Uh, this, this is, that's an unfortunate translation when people put, uh, even seizures is not really accurate. They, they may have appeared to be seizures, but in this case, it wasn't a medical condition. It was a spiritual condition. It was a demonic possession of a person who it was appearing like seizures, but it was actually a demonic deal. I think that's important because some people try to act like, well, if you're an epileptic or if you have seizures, it must be, you must have a demon in you. And there are certain people that start saying stuff like that. That's not what the Bible um, teaches here. Um, so, so we'll see that as we keep reading, but this word lunatic stumbles people. So um, this is the father saying, Lord have mercy on my son for he is a lunatic um, uh, or, you know, uh, vexed with a demon, crazy, whatever, um, and sore vexed. For oft times he falls into the fire and oft times into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Then, verse 17, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. So, um, so this is interesting. The disciples couldn't do this, and so Jesus has to sort of deal with it himself. Um, let, me, let me ask a question. Uh, this is a good question. Um, was Jesus complaining here? Does it sound like complaining? Um, how long do I have to be with you guys? Um, have, I'm sure none of you parents have said that with your children. Uh, you know, but, uh, but you, know, you might say, um, you know, Jesus is kind of complaining here. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Um, you might think of it as complaining, but <clears throat> it's not. What he's using here was a rhetorical device um, revealing that there is, there is an end to the patience of God. Um, you say, well, Brett, <coughs> the Lord's mercy endures forever. Well, praise the Lord for that. But 
as it turns out, there is an end to the patience of God. And he's hugely patient, more than any of us. <clears throat> but do you remember, you know, like for example, in Genesis chapter six, verse three, remember where it says, the Lord, uh, the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, there is an end point to when the Lord is done. And that's one of the things we talked about, the wrath of God last uh, Friday night, the prophecy update. There's a point of his wrath. And, and, and that's kind of what Jesus is using these rhetorical devices saying, sort of rhetorically, how long do I need to be with you? How long do I have to be with you? Um, uh, how long shall I you know, endure the unbelief is the idea, faithless and perverse generation. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, who is he talking to here? Is he talking to his disciples? Some people say yes. But others say it's more the, the father. Uh, the father comes up and says, my son's a lunatic and uh, he falls in the fire, but brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't cure him. Was Jesus turning to that guy saying, man, you faithless and perverse generation. Uh, others say neither. It's neither the disciples or the, or the father, but it's the Jews in general. All of the people in the story, Jesus is calling them a faithless and perverse generation. Um, it seems that that's probably who Jesus is referring to. Uh, the Jews, it seemed they should have known how to keep this kind of evil or entity out of their homes and their lives. Um, so what happens? Uh, well, it says, verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart um, and said, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence and to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Verse 21, how be it, this kind goeth out not by, but by prayer and fasting. Speaking of translations, um, if you will refer to verse 21, look in your Bible. How many of you guys do not have a verse 21 in your Bible? Raise your hands. Yeah, we'll pray for all your salvation. Uh, no, just, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, your Bibles are uh, inadequate. No, uh, what, what, what in the world's going on, on here? Well, um, the reason verse 21 is not in some of your Bibles um, is because, uh, just, I, I don't know the best way to say this other than it's, it's, this, this verse is not in the oldest of manuscripts. Um, you see, one of the things that the translators do is they use various manuscripts to uh, translate from the original language to the English or whatever translation they're making. And depending on which translator, you know, which manuscript they use, the translation can be very much different. And, you know, the NIV, for example, has a bunch of scriptures that are not in your Bible that's are, that are in my Bible. Well, Brett, is your Bible the one that's off? Um, well, I, 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 I don't believe so. One of the good news, I got some good news for you. None of the verses that are excluded out of your Bibles are gonna change your theology in any way, shape, or form. Well, Brett, this whole thing about verse 20, howbeit this kind goes out not by prayer, but by prayer and fasting. Well, why don't we get that bit of information? Well, you do. Do you remember where? It's in the gospel of Mark, the same story is given us. And as it turns out, howbeit verse 21 is in Mark chapter nine, verse 29. It's there in the Mark's account of the same story. So good news, we don't have to freak out. Uh, um, now you say, but Brett, I'm troubled. Uh, well, as it turns out, if you, you know, um, some of the oldest manuscripts, the Codex uh, Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, uh, which you say, is that Vatican like the Pope? Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a manuscript that went to uh, ultimately in the Vatican, which got it that name. But all that to say, in those older manuscripts, those verses weren't there and that's why they excluded them. So I think your NIV, your ESV, uh, also you don't have an Acts chapter eight, verse 37 uh, and stuff like that. Uh, I think your New American Standard Bible puts it in brackets. Do you guys, anybody have an NASB? Uh, they put it in brackets if I remember right. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, the, 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 the verse is not um, in all the original manuscripts or, or I shouldn't say original, oldest of manuscripts. 
Um, we don't have the original manuscript where Paul's hand was writing the epistles or you know, Matthew's handwriting. We don't, we don't have those. Um, and that, that's no big deal. Uh, people, the college professors like to say, well, the Christians trusted an unreliable Bible because they don't have the original manuscripts. Um, I, I believe just as the Bible was inspired by the writing Holy Spirit through the hand of man, so the manuscripts were transferred and very accurately. We have more manu- you know, they, they make this dumb thing about how the Bible's unreliable. Um, uh, you know, we have hundreds of manuscripts of the, of the Bible. And what's amazing is how the same they are. That, like it's more incredible of a miracle how exactly the same they are. Uh, and how many we have. There's no greater manuscript evidence work in all of the world's history than the Bible. So it's, it's always a false, uh, you know, ridiculous uh, claim that the Bible is unreliable. Uh, if the Bible's unreliable, then everything else in the whole world is un- really unreliable because the Bible is more evidence than any other manuscript. So don't let this stuff shake you. Anyway, all that to say, the disciples were lacking faith uh, and Jesus gives this classic thing. If you have even just a little, the size of a grain of mustard seed of faith, you can speak into this mountain and say, be removed. Um, and so um, what an important part of this. But, but in this case also, it seems that Jesus brings in that some comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, if it's me, I would have left that verse out too. Uh, I don't like fasting. Um, um, <laughs> But, uh, but I, I, I do like that the King James uses manuscripts that kept those in, uh, which I think is, for me, I like that. Um, anyway, um, all that to say, um, the demon came only out by prayer and fasting. Verse 22, and while they abode uh, in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the son of man shall be betrayed in the hands of men and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Poor guys, I feel bad for these guys. They're like, this is really sad, I think. Like, are we supposed to, like, like do, you, do you sense, like, are we supposed to be sad? You're, you're gonna die and then what? You're gonna raise again? Like, I get a sense the poor disciples really don't understand what's going on here. And I think we have evidence that that's true. It's not just me making that up. And the evidence is after Jesus died on the cross and Peter said, I'm going fishing. Remember that? And he took a bunch of the disciples with him and said, yeah, we're out of here. This, this is ridiculous, you know? And they weren't waiting for the resurrected Jesus as they were supposed to, really. Um, and then Jesus appears to them and then they realize and remember all those times he said, I'm gonna rise the third day. But they only really remembered that stuff after he rose from the grave. So they were very sorry. Um, but um, it's almost like they forgot about this part until the, the resurrection actually happened. You can't blame them though, because the resurrection is such a crazy notion that Jesus would be crucified and then come back to life. That, that just doesn't happen every day. So the disciples are wondering, is this figurative or literal? By the way, um, this is one of the examples of many throughout the Bible. I have found if you take the Bible literally, it's very rewarding. Um, these people that are constantly saying, well, everything's figurative. There's nothing to be taken literally. Um, that's a mistake people have made through all the ages. And it's still an error. And it just leads people in the wrong direction. Unless the Bible says that it's figurative, which it does at times, I believe we should err on the side of taking the Bible literally. Um, these disciples didn't really know what to do with this idea that he's gonna be killed and then raised from the dead three days later. Uh, they should have looked at that literally. They should have their, their watches on and watching for uh, you know, the third day after Jesus was crucified because they should have taken that literally. You know, uh, even to this day, the preterists, the amillennialists, they're, they're like, uh, well, you know, the Old Testament, the Jews being scattered and regathered, that's all figurative language of the literally happening in our day, in our life. In the last hundred years, the Jews and Israel's become a nation fulfilling perfectly literally Ezekiel 36, 37, 38. Um, it's kind of amazing. Uh, we're seeing that happen, uh, happening right under our faces. Very literal fulfillment. Uh, anyway, the disciples, they, they don't understand this, but they would after it literally would happen. Uh, well, we go on, uh, verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter, the tax collectors, and said, doth not your master pay tribute? And he said, yes. <laughs> and when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. Um, the word um, prevented is probably an old English kind of thing, but the idea is interrupted, sort of stopped him in his tracks. Um, Jesus interrupted him saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? 
Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, of strangers. Uh, Jesus said unto him, then are the children free? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Um, this this kind of cracks me up. It's like when you go to breakfast with a friend and it's like, who's gonna t- pick up the tab? Uh, you know, and Jesus is like, yeah, I'll take care of it. Go fishing, grab a fish, pull the money out, pay for both of us. It'll be, it's on me this time around. Like, like this is kind of funny. Uh, what a story. Now, now you gotta remember, Peter was a professional fisherman. Um, and what does a professional fisherman do? He goes into a boat, casts his nets and cats, catches a bunch of fish. This would be, this is, this is such a rookie thing to do, to go out with a hook and try to catch a fish. Uh, I wonder if Jesus was just sort of humbling Peter, like there's Peter like, okay, like this is not what I do. I'm a fisherman, this is ridiculous. It'd be like giving a, a, a batting tee to a, a, a National League baseball player saying, here, take a swing at that, you know? It's like, uh, it's not what we do, we're professionals here. Um, in, in the same way, Peter's just out there with a hook, you know, trying to catch a fish. That was not his normal operation. Sometimes I think the Lord wants us to sort of humble ourselves and do something that's even beneath us in some ways. But, but then the Lord says, watch what I'll do with that when we humble ourselves. So Peter goes out, fishes, and uh, interesting that he talks about this um, taxes, you know. You know, the tribute money or the temple tax, as it was called, um, was actually a law of the Jews given from Deuteronomy that all Jews had to pay a certain temple tax. Um, but it seems that, um, you know, Peter just gave a little too quick of a yes. Does your master pay taxes? Uh, yeah, 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 he does. And then Peter walks in, um, Jesus says, uh, Peter, does a, does a, you know, he, he gives this little story about the king who draws taxes. Does he take taxes from his own children? And the answer is, well, no. Um, the implication is we really don't have to pay taxes because I'm the king of kings. I'm the king of the Jews. And I don't make my children pay taxes either. But it's the stranger who's supposed to pay taxes. And Jesus is making this into an object lesson. He's not scolding Peter as much as just saying, um, you know, as the Messiah who you saw transfigured earlier in this chapter, uh, I really don't have to pay taxes to anybody. But I love this, um, notwithstanding verse 27, we, um, lest we should offend them, go and to the sea, cast a hook, take up the first fish and, and uh, get the money out of its mouth. I love that Jesus says, I'm, I'm not wanting to make a big deal or offend uh, or make people mad or, or you know, whatever. I'm just gonna kind of go through the motions of this. Is that dishonest or sinful? Well, again, Jesus is not dishonest or sinful. So sometimes it's right to do something just to avoid the conflict or perhaps even to be a peacemaker or even to be considerate uh, of others, uh, even though you know you really don't have to do it. You know, it's interesting because uh, with the COVID shutdown, uh, there was massive dis, dis, uh, disagreement in America and, and even among pastors and churches. And some pastors, uh, I'll just say, uh, you know, were very vocal about, we should not shut down the church. And they were really mad about that. Um, other pastors were like, oh, you, mean to, you need to be loving and shut down. And, and, and some pastors signed an undying pledge to Governor Brown saying, we shall never meet until you tell us to. And like, there was this big controversy, you know, but, um, but what did Athan Creek do? Uh, well, I'm not saying this pridefully. I, you know, we were just praying about it every second, saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? And um, when, it, when, the first, when it first came down, uh, you know, they were talking about this big pandemic that was gonna happen. And so after prayer, we thought, well, let's, you know, none of, none of us as elders are panicky people and health people that get all freaked out about stuff, about getting sick and stuff. Like none of us are that way. But we thought, well, let's, let's try to be considerate and loving. That was honest, honestly the reason we, we did uh, comply. Um, and, and also you're supposed to comply with um, you know, the laws of the land. But, but as it turns out, we also knew that uh, shutting down churches is not the law of the land. We have a constitutional right as a church to continue to meet and nobody can mess with that according to the constitution. We knew that. But we thought, let's, let's just for the sake, and you might even say like what Jesus said, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, 
Let's go ahead and shut it down. We've got the online thing that we've been using for you know, more than 10 years. Let's, let's just shut it down for a while just to be loving. Let's see what happens with this, you know, the black plague or whatever it's gonna be. And when we realized that it wasn't as bad as everybody said it was gonna be, not even close, and, um, and, and it was a little bit of a control thing and we realized it was kind of, uh, uh, eventually, I feel like the whole shutting down everything, we all felt this, I think, it was pretty wacko. So a few months in, we opened up against the, the governor and all the mandates and all this stuff and people got mad and I got threatened of money and jail time and all that stuff. Um, but all that to say, we, we won because we have the constitutional right to meet as a church. Thank the Lord for our constitution. And we, we uh, stood by that. And as it turns out, it, it, they admitted, that the, even the state of Oregon, Governor Brown admitted that churches have the right to meet no matter what they say. Um, but, but I, I found it interesting, uh, the arrogance and the stuff that people were saying about you know, shutting down or, you know, my word to other pastors, was, man, do what the Lord leads you guys to do. Like, you know, and, and go for it. Live, do what God shows you and your leadership team to do. And I'm not gonna tell you what to do as a church or whatever. And I find it interesting, you know, that people, you know, get all up in a tizzy about stuff like this. I think you could have gone kind of either way as long as you were doing what the Lord called you to do. Um, Jesus does something here that I think a lot of people that I've talked to under the COVID thing would say, forget the taxes, we don't need to owe, Jesus is the king of kings, Lord, lords, we, don't, we, we only answer to Jesus. But here's Jesus saying, that's true. I am the king of kings and Lord of lords, but we're gonna pay the stupid tax. Like, like it's kind of a funny thing how Jesus did this, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go and get the money out of the fish's mouth. I think that's kind of an interesting thing. Well, um, Jesus took care of his taxes, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, you know, we, we could talk more about that, but, but um, I, I like that Peter had to learn the lesson before he just said, yes, yeah, my, you know, he pays taxes. Peter was actually misrepresenting Jesus a little bit there when he just said, yeah, my, my master pays taxes. And Jesus had to do a little corrective work to remind G Peter that he was Jesus the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Don't, don't just glibly uh, say, yeah, my master pays taxes. Sometimes I think we make the mistake of diminishing Jesus too. Don't ever forget, Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't wanna make the mistake of, of Peter. Well, all that to say, uh, man, a lot of controversial stuff in Matthew chapter 17, whether it's the, uh, you know, the, did Jesus see the, did they see the coming kingdom? The answer is yes. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus revealed in his kingdom form. Um, is John the Baptist Elijah? No, but he had the spirit of Elijah on him and Elijah's coming. Um, and did Jesus pay taxes? Yep, he sure did. Uh, and uh, he says, rend under Caesar, what is Caesar's? Like there's a lot of controversial things. Was Jesus complaining? No, uh, Jesus was rhetorically reminding them that there's a end date to his patience uh, of enduring with them and suffering them. All that to say, I love the scriptures. It gives us a full meal deal of instruction. Uh, so Lord bless you, let's pray together as we close. Lord, we're so thankful uh, for your word and thankful for the scriptures that we've covered even tonight, Lord, a lot of stuff, but um, give us greater understanding and application of your word. Um, give us the right heart and right spirit behind what your word teaches. Um, and Lord, I pray that we'd have your heart and your mind. Lord, in these days where it just seems to us to be very much like the last days, uh, I pray that we'd be uh, Christians that are shining our lights uh, brightly. I pray that people turn to you and come to know you. Uh, use us, Lord, to point people to you. Uh, so bless these, your people who've covered this study tonight. Bless all the people online watching and uh, all the people that are with us in watch parties and groups. Lord, just bless all the people that have tuned into your scriptures tonight. Uh, we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.